Well, I trust that you've just enjoyed a time together already of worship through song and, um, and just some fellowship beforehand. And we will have uh, an opportunity for more fellowship after. If you remember, this is the first Sunday of the month, and so this is October. Uh, and we get to have our fellowship lunch. So even as our young ones get to go and have their time, we will have our time in the Word and time of worship. But, you know, after our service today, we have uh, our community lunch. It's our fellowship lunch, and it'll be our last barbecue. But remember, we continue all through the year to, uh, to have a, a time of uh, lunch and more fellowship on the first Sunday of every month. Uh, but today we will have our last barbecue, um, sort of getting a little colder, whatever. And so, uh, but it's, it's a great time. So please, um, even if you're joining us for the first time today, stay. If you didn't bring anything, it doesn't matter. There'll be plenty of food. And we love to just continue what we're doing because we're going to end our gathering here in this room uh, around the Lord's table. We also do that on the first uh, Sunday of the month. And so, um, you know, we're going to end our time around that, remembering the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus, and then we get to go and have a time of fellowship uh, and, and a meal together. And that's also appropriate because that's what the, the early church did, and they had a time of reflection about uh, what it cost them, uh, what it cost Jesus to bring them to that point. Um, but also they then were able to celebrate the fact that he was no longer on the cross or in the grave. And so that's why we are here as well. And so we'll end our time around the table. And just as another reminder um, that we have uh, also what we call an info session. So the first Sunday of every month, if you are interested in learning more about uh, Trinity, that you can um, just join me down in the conference room after service, grab some lunch and uh, get the first online, get some lunch and meet down there. We'll eat together. I'll answer any questions you have. Give a little presentation about Trinity, our history, where we are today, and what we're looking forward to in the future, and then answer any questions you have. So take advantage of that as well. Uh, so we are in the um, we are in the book of Habakkuk, and uh, however you want to say it, we're going to continue to look at his word together. We are still in chapter two, but we're going to finish chapter two today. So uh, if you want to follow along in your Bibles, in a few minutes, it'll be up on the screen. But it's Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 6 to 20. And today's passage is a little rough to get through, uh, I think, because what it is, is it's actually, it's a song. I'm not going to sing it. Some of you are wondering. But it's, you know what it is? It's a special kind of song. And perhaps you've heard of it, but have you ever heard of a funeral dirge? A dirge is, is a type of song for mourning, and it can be just a, maybe a little depressing, a little, but because it's sorrowful, but the idea is that there is sorrow involved because of, of a loss uh, or a tragedy. And so this is a song that God sings and gives to, in essence, Habakkuk, and Habakkuk writes it down. And so it is a dirge, and it's uh, five um, stanzas, so to speak, five woes, uh, where he says, woe to you, the Chaldeans, or remember the Babylonians. And he talks about their great sin. But, but the key for us this morning is that as we read through this, this song, because it reads and sounds like a song, that you recognize that God is saying that whatever these wicked and depraved Babylonians are going to do, remember what he's going to allow them to do, as his vessel of judgment 
on his people of Judah, right? That he is still going to um, judge the Babylonians. They will not get away with it. If you remember, that is what Habakkuk was worried about from the beginning. Like, how can you let these people do that and get away with it? And so here is that final answer that God gives to Habakkuk and says, basically, and this is sort of the theme for today, what they sow, they will reap. He says that. Basically, what comes around, goes around type of thing. And that's what he's saying, that whatever it is, and he lists five specific things in these five woes that the Babylonians will do or have done. He says that exact thing will come back to bite them. That thing will come back to get them, that, that exact thing. And so there is this really, this biblical principle that we see laid out here that what we sow, we will reap. And so there's a story, um, you know, that I read recently about uh, an urban farmer. So there is sort of this trend now, the people that live in urban centers in the city, they, they recognize, especially the younger generation, that they want to you know, like reconnect with nature. And uh, so, so you see like little uh, gardens uh, popping up on rooftops, uh, more community gardens in, in the cities and and it's great. And so there was this one urbanite, this young, this young uh, man who lived in the city, and he wanted to raise chickens. So he thought, wow, what a great way to connect with nature. I don't have to pay for eggs. It's just, it'll be so fresh and organic and all that. And so he goes to a farmer outside the city and asks him about how to do that. And so the, uh, the farmer told this young man that he should start small with just a few chickens but, but the, the urbanite, the young man from the city, was insistent that he needed to start with a hundred chicks, a hundred small chicks, right? And so knowing the, the mistakes that, um, that would, certainly would be made because this, this farmer has been doing it a long time, but he wanted to just be nice and encourage him. He said, you know, chicken farming isn't easy, but to help you get started, I'll give you a hundred chicks. And so the man was really excited. And so um, he, he brought the chicks back into the city, had a little plot of land behind his apartment, and um, he was starting to, you know, to do what the farmer said, right? And so two weeks later, the farmer dropped in, went into the city to see how things were going. And the man said, you know, things aren't going too well here in the city. All 100 chicks died. And the farmer said, I, I can't believe that. I've never had any trouble with my chickens. Let's try it one more time. I'll give you 100 more chicks. So after another two weeks, the farmer goes back into the city and stops by again. And the man said, you're not going to believe this. But the second 100 chicks, they all died too. And the farmer just couldn't believe it. He said, what went wrong? And the urbanite farmer said, I'm not sure if I'm either planting them too deep or too close together. Okay, so there you go. Thank you. Thank you very much. So if you're ever interested in chicken farming, make sure you read the manual, right? So... But therein lies an example of what you sow, you will reap. And I think it's also a principle that we see throughout Scripture, the Old and the New Testament. There's a lot of illustrations and metaphors and references that our Lord Jesus uses and others throughout the Scriptures regarding like gardening or farming. Because you remember, we read these things in context and we know that when and Jesus 
was, was alive and teaching, and even hundreds of years before that in, um, in the Old Testament times, and thousands of years, they were an agrarian society, so they were farming. Some of us here know a little bit about what farming looks like and all that, right? And so some of us are more like the urbanites where we would plant the chicks, and others are farmers, and we have an understanding, right? But the thing is, is that we can all understand that simple concept that what you sow, which means like to plant, right? What you're going to plant, you're going to get, right? And so if you plant like a, an apple tree, you hope to get apples and not peaches. That would be a miracle, right? That would be something. And so, of course, we understand that concept. But do we understand what it means for us spiritually in our relationship with the Lord? Because in this passage that I'll read in a moment, we see that God is telling um, Habakkuk, he says, don't worry, I'm finally addressing the issue at hand. I know the thing you've been worried about, my, you know, my servant Habakkuk. And he, he says, these wicked Chaldeans, they will be judged based upon what they are doing. But we also remember through it all, and just keep this as your filter, that there was the Mosaic law. There was a law. There was an understanding between um, uh, between God and his people. There was his covenant with Abraham and there was then the Mosaic law. And you see, you have this idea that if they did things to please God, there would be blessings. But if they were disobedient, there would be what the Bible calls curses, right? They would miss out on those blessings. But today, what is our greatest blessing? It's that word grace, that we are no longer under the law, right? That we do not have to work our way to heaven, as we say, or to work our way into relationship with God through Jesus because Jesus did it all for us. But yet, the concept still remains biblical and true for us, that we know if we act out of anger, what might we expect the consequences to be or what might come back to us? Don't we always like to say, or we teach our kids, what do we call the golden rule? Like, do unto others, right? And so it's very simple, but what God is saying here in a very graphic and powerful way, that all of the sins, all the things that these Chaldeans, the Babylonians did in conquering others and and violently taking by force other nations and peoples that will all come back on them. And see, that is what God is saying and what he is doing. And so I want to read this. um, And uh, what we're going to do is we're going to focus on just the last few verses, the, the last of the five woes. Remember we said this is a, a dirge, it's a song. And so it's, it's five woes and there's three verses uh, in each one. And that each of them kind of just focuses on uh, a certain way that these people were ungodly. Okay, so that gives us a bit of a context. And then we're just going to focus our time, park a little bit on uh, the last few verses, 18, 19, and 20. Uh, because what they teach us is very powerful, church. It's about idol worship. It's about idol worship. Because if we're going to reap what we sow, who is it that we are worshiping? And that makes all the difference. So let's read it. So this is Habakkuk 2, and it's verses 6 through 20. It says, Shall not all these take up their taunt against him? with scoffing and riddles for him, and say, and I'm going to stop right there, one second, then I'll read the rest. When it says, shall not all these, it's talking about all of the nations that were conquered, okay? This is is basically talking to Habakkuk, but then to all of the nations who were conquered, 
He's talking to them saying like, like the people that oppressed you, the, these wicked uh, Babylonians, they will have their day. And so he's telling them saying, shall not all of these, telling Habakkuk, all these other nations that were victims, won't they come up against the Babylonians and taunt them? And this is sort of a called a taunt song or a uh, dirge. Okay, and so that's the idea that these other nations are now scoffing at the, uh, the evil Babylonians. So it says, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people, that people's labor merely for fire, and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you. And utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you. As will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to the cities and all who dwell in them. For what profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? a metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple, that all the earth keeps silence before him. Very powerful, right? So there's these five woes, and basically what's happening here, again, God is saying, you know what, Habakkuk? Tell all your people and all those nations around that have been victimized by the the fearless uh, Babylonians that that there's no longer need to fear them. For everything that they did to others is going to come back to them. He says things like, they're going to have shame instead of glory. And they're going to have death instead of life. He says in verse 16, the cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you. In scriptures, the, the, the cup in the Lord's right hand often means uh, judgment. See, it's very powerful. He even says in verse 17, this is very specific, the violence done to Lebanon, right? And so in Lebanon, they were, all, they were known for their cedars, these tall, beautiful trees. 
And so the Babylonians came and cut down all these trees and used it to build houses. And, and God says, you, you can't, in verse 12, woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city, a, a city on iniquity. And he says, all the way that you came and chopped down all those beautiful trees that Lebanon loves so much, that that violence is going to come back and overwhelm you. They even destroyed all the animals in the forest, see, of all the, the, the cedars of Lebanon. And he says, all beasts will come and be your destruction. For the blood of man and violence to the earth and the cities and all who dwell will come back on them, see. But what we're going to do then is we're going to focus on the last three verses in particular, 18, 19, and 20. It says again, what prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Isn't that interesting? Talking about idols that people will create. And God is saying, can these idols speak to you? Can they help you in times of trouble like I can? He says it's like the creator creates something and then they worship that. See? But we all know, like in, in today's age, we don't, we're not necessarily creating idols made out of wood or metal or stone. But don't we still create idols in our lives? Maybe it's in a relationship. Because we can often take things that are good and make them idols. Even a good relationship can get in the way of our ultimate relationship with our Heavenly Father. Maybe for you it's money or success. You know, God doesn't measure success by the things that we have. He measures it by our faithfulness. See, we're not to make idols of anyone or anything. Whether it's seeking out fame or fortune or whether it's just seeking out more power or influence or authority, if we are following God and worshiping Him and being faithful, if He wants those things for us to use for His glory, then He will give them. But you remember in our last passage from last week, what God told Habakkuk to do? He said to wait. Remember that? He said, if it seems like I'm delaying, Habakkuk, like, like I'm delaying in bringing my, my answer to your message, he says, just wait a little bit more. We don't like to hear that, do we? I've been waiting so long. Yes, just wait a little bit more. Because remember what God says, and it's so applicable here. It's through the whole book. He says, I'm already doing something, Habakkuk. I've got plans. And, and they're already in motion. And what we've been saying all along, I, I could tell you, and, and I will I'll tell you, but you're still not going to believe it. See, so that leaves us with only one option to trust. Are we going to trust him? Or are we going to wait faithfully? See, this idea of sowing and reaping, it has everything to do with Idol worship, because what are we going to get out of what we put into it if it is an idol made of, as God says, of metal or of wood? It is speechless. It cannot speak back to you or give you advice or help you in times of trouble. So therefore, it is futile to do so because what you sow into anything, into any relationship, into any endeavor, and especially into our relationship with the Lord, we will reap that. A little bit about sowing and reaping. Sowing and reaping implies waiting. Like I said, all throughout Scripture we have this, these pictures of sowing and reaping because they were mostly agrarian societies. So they understood what it meant to plant something. 
You plant a seed, you plant a, a sapling of a tree, you plant something, but you're doing it why? Why are you planting something? To see it grow, right? But do you come back the next morning and it's completely grown? Unless it's a chia pet and, and you put the water in the next morning. Otherwise it takes time, doesn't it? And, and God has to bring the rain. And if he doesn't bring the rain, you have to go water it yourself, don't you? You do. But the idea is it takes time. So there is this, this continued idea in our study of Habakkuk about waiting. And we said that last week that it's all about in the waiting. See, as a church, we are in the time of waiting. In, in God's history and God's plan of time, we are in what's called the church age or the age of grace where he came once, his first advent. We celebrate that at Christmas. He came and... He came to die to be that redeemer. And he said, after he died and rose again, he said, I will be back. Isn't that what we're waiting for, church? See, that's our, our, our blessed hope, our great hope, that he's going to return. I believe it could happen at any moment that he'll come back for his church. And then set into motion all the rest of what he planned out for the end times, the end events of his plan. But see, we are in a time of perpetual waiting. But the whole key is, how are we going to wait? Are we going to wait faithfully? Because we certainly don't want to reap the rewards of something that we sow that is ungodly. So how are we spending our time? Who is it that we are worshiping? Is it any other idol or any other god or any other person or any other thing? So sowing and reaping implies waiting. There's nothing good or valuable that's going to come that just grows overnight. A farmer or any of us need to be patient to see the fruit of our labor. That's why we pray. Maybe we include that in our prayers too. Father, just use me. And it doesn't matter if I never see the fruit. Just use me to plant the seeds. I remember as a kid, I used to love at my parents' house, they had this, I think it was a Disney cartoon of like Johnny Appleseed. And where he went around, there was all these songs he was singing. I don't know if that was the actual name, but it was that story where he would go around planting the apple seeds. But he didn't stick around to watch the tree grow ten years later. He went around the countryside, right, in that story, planting seeds. Now, he couldn't water it. He couldn't make the sun come out. That was all God in God's perfect timing. But see, what we're called to do is to plant the seeds. So we sow but there will be a harvest of reaping. Our Lord is called the Lord of the harvest, right? He is the Lord of the harvest. So what are we called to do? To plant the seeds and then to wait. And so the Bible kind of calls ministry and living out as disciples that way, right? For God will bring forth, bring forth fruit to his glory, but in his time. Galatians 6, 9 says, at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. But there's also this idea, not only that there is a waiting in the sowing and reaping, but there is this idea that we will reap in kind what we sow. Right? That's what we're talking about. Galatians 6, 8 says, Whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap life. Right? It's very simple. But it's something we need to be reminded of all the time. But see, the people of Israel, the Jewish nation, and specifically in the context of Habakkuk, the people of Judah, the southern tribes, the southern nation that Habakkuk was, was a part of in speaking to, right? They were the ones about to be taken over by Babylon. 
See, they had a great tradition in history of this covenant relationship with God. But if you've ever read through the Old Testament, you see what's the cycle they go through. They are obedient to their covenant relationship with God, but then they become disobedient. And how? Idol worship. They follow other gods. They make them themselves. Or God says, don't intermarry with other nations. That's not going to be good. I want you to be pure and set apart. And they wind up doing it over generations. They intermarry. They just become entwined with pagan cultures. And they wind up worshiping false gods. Some of them, it's just actual idols. We remember what happened when Moses was on the mountain and he came down. And what happened? What were they doing? They were worshiping the calf, right? The golden calf that they had created He wasn't even gone that long. They couldn't even wait. See, are we waiting faithfully? Or because we don't feel like God's answering, or we don't know when he's going to come back, and man, it's been so long. It's been like 2,000 years. The disciples thought he was coming right back in, in their day, and it's been so long, and I don't know, maybe it's better if I just start worshiping these other things or other people, because I can get immediate results. You see, that's how we're conditioned, right? Yes, more so in today's society than ever before, but it's our human condition, and it always has been. We want those immediate results. How frustrated do you get when you try to turn your phone on, it doesn't come right on? Oh, man, I I forgot to charge it. Because you need that immediate, like, reaction. But God says, wait. We say, hurry up, God, and God says, wait. But I want you to wait faithfully. Don't wait And forget me and follow these other idols and other gods. But that's the whole story of, see, of God's relationship with his people. From the very beginning, they were continuing to worship other gods. It was idol worship. That was their greatest sin, was worshiping other gods. It's the history of Israel. You can read it in the books of Samuel and Kings, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. You read those books, those six books, you're going to see that destructive pattern and behavior. God sent prophets in the Old Testament, one after the other, to prophesy the consequences if Israel continues in their idolatry. That's what it is. When we say idol worship, it's idolatry. When you're idolizing, putting something or someone before God. Now, we might say we would never do that. But do our actions show it? Remember what Peter said. Jesus said, you'll deny me. He said, no way, God. Remember he said, these other, these other knuckleheads, they might do it. But I'm not going to do it. And what did he do? He denied them just like Jesus said. But see, we have a merciful God. And he's always willing to forgive and to restore. We see it in the Old Testament because they cry out to God and then he restores them. And they're good for a time and they're so close in their covenant relationship. And then what happens? They feel like, I don't know, God's not making our crops good enough. Or I see those other nations, they're having a little more fun and that looks better. And so they wind up over generations just slowly. That's how things happen, church. You know that, that slippery slope. Slowly they start just worshiping other, other gods false idols, and they forget about the one true God. Do you remember the story in 1 Samuel chapter 5 about how the Philistines had, um, had captured the ark and what they did? It's a very powerful story about how God does not tolerate idol worship. 
It says this in 1 Samuel 5, 1 through 5. When the Philistines had captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. See, that was their area, their hometown. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. Do you see what's happening here? They brought the Ark of the Covenant with the one true God, and the Philistines had captured it in battle, brought it to their temple, and set up the Ark of the Covenant with the God of the universe in it right next to the statue of their God that they had made. And it says, And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground. But how did he fall and where did he fall? Before the Ark of the Covenant. You love that picture? That the idol is falling down, bowing down right before the one true God. It says, so they took Dagon and they picked him up. They put him back in his place. Oh, he must have just fallen, I guess. But when they rose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground again before the Ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. That put a little fear on him, didn't it? But it's not powerful. So who made that statue to fall? God did. Because he does not tolerate worshiping his people, his covenant people, those that he loves. Let's apply it to ourselves. Those for whom he sent his son to die on the cross, that horrible death. He says, worship me. God is a jealous God. We know it. There's other stories. I won't read it. Remember between with God and uh, Elijah and the 450 prophets of Baal, remember, on Mount Carmel? What a great, powerful testimony that was of the power of the one true God and the impotence of all the other false gods. I mean, the testimony of Scripture tells us what? That God alone is worthy of worship. Idol worship, very simply, church, robs God of the glory that is rightfully His. Can I say that again? That idol worship robs God of the glory that is rightfully His. Now, you don't have to raise your hand or say anything, but if I were to ask you, what is the first of the Ten Commandments? You might not be able to quote it, but you could probably say like what the idea is. There's ten commandments. We find them in Exodus 20. What's the first one? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. You can't get any more powerful than that. God starts off his whole list of commandments and he says, let's get first things first. Let's get this straight. You shall have no other gods before me. And he gets very specific, doesn't he? Don't make for yourself a carved image in any other likeness. And so what did they do? Let's make a golden calf. But aren't we like that too? 
We read what the Word of God says. Yes, God, you want me alone and you want me to just give you my heart and not to anybody else, no other God, but nothing before you. And then slowly we wind up doing that. But I think Paul tells us also, remember when he tells us about putting on the full armor of God? What's the purpose of that? To defend against, to fight against, right? The fiery darts of the enemy. Because we have an enemy who wants to rob God of glory. And how does that happen? When we just fade away from God and give our attention and focus and value and worship to other things or to other people. And he even says in there, don't miss it, in verse 5, he says, you sh-, he goes, I don't even want you to make one, but you shouldn't even bow down to them. Do you see what God did to the huge statue of Dagon? He made it bow down to him because he is the one true God. But we know again in life, we can make all kinds of things idols, even when we're in times of difficulty, maybe there's things that we, we latch onto for a sense of peace from the difficulties, things we might get addicted to or to put our attention and focus elsewhere. Like we're trying to get help in every other way except from the God who is offering himself to help us. And I think one of the biggest reasons is because he says to wait, but to wait faithfully. See, we don't want to have to wait. We want results now. And there are things in life that can bring instant results, that can help to mask our pain, but that's all they do is is mask. It's not a cure. But see, when we rely on those things and those things only, then we're saying, God, I guess I don't need you because these things are doing what I ask you to do. But what does God say? Those are false gods. When you, when you need help, are they truly going to be there in the end to help you? These things that you're giving your time and attention to, that you're allowing to, to, to master her that you're supposed to bring to me, he says. See, what we have done is forsaken the God that is revealed to us in Scripture, like you talked about last week. Like we make all kinds of, of decisions about who God is based on everything except His Word. We base it on our circumstances, how we feel and what's going on around us. I guess this is how God is because this is what I'm experiencing. No, we believe there is an absolute truth. It's found in his word. It's found in the one true God and he reveals himself to us so we can know him. But we have to reach out and accept it. Just like salvation, it's not going to happen automatically. Do you know that the, the, the word of God teaches us so powerfully that In Christ, when you have believed in the Lord Jesus for salvation, meaning that you understand, you accept the facts of who He is, that He was God, and you trust Him for that salvation. See, when we do that, it says we then have the Holy Spirit within us. God Himself, instantly at that moment we believe. We are given the Holy Spirit to help us live faithfully in the waiting. But here's the trick. The Holy Spirit doesn't automatically do His thing through us. We have to allow Him to work through us. We talk about the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's not our fruit, it's His fruit. But see, we are to be that conduit, that vessel for Him to exhibit His fruit through us. But we can only do it if we allow Him to. So how do we do that? We stay obedient. We trust and obey. We wait 
faithfully. That's our call, church. Let's try to keep it simple. In all the difficulties and complexities of life, let's keep it simple that God expects us and He wants us, He desires in His heart for us to trust Him and to be obedient while we wait for Christ's return. And in that, we will then allow the Holy Spirit to lead and to guide us. The more that we're obedient, the more that we are trusting, the more in tune we will be to the call of the Holy Spirit. And we'll then be within His will. See, that's when what starts to happen as a disciple, that His will becomes our will. The things that we desire are the things that He desires. As we draw closer to Him. In a moment, we're going to move to gather around the Lord's table and you will be served elements. You will be served a a piece of bread and the cup representing what Christ did. It's an image that really we should never forget, Christ on the cross. But we also remember the hope that is in that story. We also remember, in addition to Christ on the cross, we remember the empty tomb. Remember, it says that we are to worship God now. That we are to be no longer slaves to sin, but slaves to Christ. So we can worship Christ. It's okay to worship. It's okay to idolize as long as it's the one true God. And that is Jesus Christ himself. So verses 18 to 20, they're very simply wrapping it up. He says, he says what prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? Like, what's it going to do for him? In verse 19 and 20, you almost have to laugh, right? Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake. It's like you're going to take this idol that you've created and say, hey, wake up now and help me. To the silent stone, arise. And God says, can these things help you and teach you? Yeah, they're overlaid with gold and silver, but there's no breath in it at all. And that it ends with that powerful image. Yeah, so you got these, these things that are created. They can do nothing for you. It says, but the Lord, the one you should be worshiping, he is in his holy temple. So let all the earth keep silence before him. So you remember the Philistines, they had a temple for their God that they created an image of. And God says, no, he's in his holy temple, which is in heaven. And then um, verse 14, it had said, all the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, I believe that is pointing to a day in the future, what we call the millennial kingdom, when Jesus Christ will come and reign on the throne of David in Jerusalem. And that is when the knowledge of the Lord, the glory of the Lord, will shine all around, it says. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We look forward to that day. But first, Christ will come and return for us. Um, I'd like to... Um, uh, I'd like to transition into our time around the table, and I want to do that by reading from Philippians chapter 2. In church, if you, um, if you ever get caught up in, in um, recognizing you're putting other things before God, remember what God says to the Babylonians, and remember He calls them conceited and puffed up. They do things out of vain conceit. And they do things for their own interests. Remember that? So here's what it says in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. It'll be on the screen, but I'd like to read it to you. Let this be our reading for our um, communion right now. Listen to these words. You can read them on the screen and think about how we might contrast the Lord Jesus in what He did 
to how God is describing the Babylonians and their conceited efforts in all of their idol worship to really worshiping themselves. Let's contrast that to what Jesus did, and then we decide who is it that we want to follow? Whose example do we want to follow? Do we want to be like the Lord Jesus or like the Babylonians? And just take time to reflect on that. So after I read, I'm going to pray for the bread and the cup. They will be passed to you. While you listen to the music and they're being passed to you and the people around you, just take a, a, a time of, of just reflection and meditation on your relationship with God. The Word of God says that this thing is for Christians to do. And so if you're here today and you're not sure or you have not yet believed in the Lord Jesus for salvation, it's okay. Just let the elements pass by you. But this is what Jesus said to his disciples, that we are to do this, right? That we are to do this. Um, we are to do this for, uh, for him in remembrance of him. All right? And so let me read this. It says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What an amazing passage of Scripture. Philippians 2, 1 through 11. Because Paul is showing us the ultimate example of humility. But he shows us in Habakkuk 2 the ultimate example of self-worship. And that is the people of Babylon. But it was also going on, church, in, in the people of Israel, God's covenant people. So we need to check ourselves before we accuse others or even ask God, God, would you help me that we would say, perhaps there's a plank in my own eye that I need to see before I go looking at the speck in others.